Good morning to everyone. It's so good to see all that are able to be with us this morning, and we're very appreciative of everyone's presence. Glad to see some who have been traveling or unable to be with us back with us. Very thankful for those that are visitors and not able to be with us very often to be here, and so we're very thankful for everybody's presence. As you can see, we're going to continue, and I uh, plan on this probably being the last, uh, at least at this time, sermon in our series that we've been engaging in over the last few weeks concerning deacons. In our first lesson, we talked simply about that word deacon, what it meant. We saw that the word deacon simply means a servant or a minister uh, in most senses, and that is what a, a deacon is. We saw that all of us are called to be deacons in the New Testament in the sense that all of us are servants, all of us serve the Lord and His church and His people. But while that is the case, and generically we are all servants of the church, we also can see from Philippians 1 and 1 Timothy 3 that there is also an official role that is called the deacon within congregational organization. And so last Sunday we talked about the work of that role. We used Acts chapter 6 and that story there about the needy widows and the appointment of a group of men that were there called the seven, but who were appointed to a task of serving and service to help the needs of those widows be met in the Jerusalem church. And so we use that kind of as a foundation to understand that while needs of congregations change from maybe one congregation to the next congregation, uh, the role of deacons is generically given to us in the New Testament to be a role that helps the congregational members meet needs, a role that helps the church leadership, the elders, be able to focus on their spiritual oversight and guiding of a congregation. And as they do this, deacons simply serve the church. And so that brings us to this lesson today. What type of men, what type of individuals should be selected to fill this role? As a congregation, as we as a congregation hopefully begin considering this uh, even more seriously and thinking about trying to achieve this goal of appointing men to be deacons, what type of men should we look for? Just as when we were talking about elders and church leadership, we saw from the scriptures that we don't just appoint any man who wants the position. We don't just appoint any man who might be the most popular in a congregation. When it comes to church leadership, we appoint men who are qualified. And how we know they're qualified is we look at the qualifications that scripture gives us. And the same is true with deacons. It's not just a matter of who is the most talented, who is somebody that we want to put in the position, who is somebody that's willing to volunteer for the position. We have to ask who is qualified to serve in this very important role of a deacon. And so that is what we're going to consider this morning. To do this, we're going to look at two passages. Uh, we are going to go back to Acts chapter 6 and spend a very brief time there, because while those men, again, were not specifically called deacons, I think that they are the prototype of deacons, and we talked about that last time. And in that passage, there is a very brief list of qualifications. When the apostles told the, the congregations in, uh, the, or the church in Jerusalem to select men, they gave them qualifications to consider. And I think that those are helpful for us. I think they're very closely related to the qualifications that we will then look at in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Now, at the onset, I'm going to say we're not going to do a deep dive into most of these qualifications. We're going to simply look at generically what they mean 
to be quite honest, most of them are pretty self-explanatory. But I think that in their generality and in the fact that they are so simple, they probably have some bigger, deeper meanings. And hopefully uh, you'll see what I mean by that with some of these qualifications as we go through the study. So let's begin by considering the men that were selected and appointed to the role of the seven in Acts chapter 6. If you recall there, the Hellenistic widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of the food, and a complaint arose because of this. But the apostles were so overburdened with all of their tasks that they had told the group that it was not right for them to give up basically preaching the word and prayer in order to serve physical needs. And so they told the the group to select seven men, and they told the people what type of men to look for. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 3, the apostle said, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So the first thing that we see there that I'll mention here is notice that they were told to select men. We're going to come back to this when we talk about uh, deacons and who can serve as deacons in First Timothy chapter 3 because that question arises. But we'll just note for now that in Acts 7 or in Acts 6, the church was told to select men for this responsibility. But what type of men were they supposed to be? First of all, they were supposed to be men of good repute. That word that is translated there, at least in the English Standard Version as of good repute, has to do with uh, a positive witness or testimony. Now, I think all of us can understand what a good reputation means. Uh, I heard one preacher say a good reputation 2,000 years ago meant the same thing that a good reputation means today. It's pretty basic. Who is a person that is a good reputation? When we think of a person, what is the first thing that we think of? When we think of a person, do we think immediately positively of them or negatively of them? And not because of uh, jealousy or envy or those types of things, but does a person, do they have a reputation that is bad, that is sour? Or do they have a positive, do they have a positive reputation? But this, this word also, like I said, it has this idea of a positive witness or a testimony. If someone were to be put on, if you were on trial, if your character was on trial, and people were to give testimony about you, what type of testimony would your family give? Would your neighbors give? Would your coworkers give? Would your brothers and sisters in Christ give? How would they testify about your character? Hopefully all of us are desire a good reputation and are seeking a good reputation, but the seven had to be men that already had a good reputation. These were men that the congregation knew, that they trusted, that were reputable men. They were also supposed to be full of the Spirit. Now, in most translations that capitalize the Spirit when they think it's talking about the Holy Spirit, uh, the Spirit here in Acts chapter 6 verse 3 will be capitalized, indicating that they are men full of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's an interpretation there. Um, But it leads many people to think that the seven were supposed to be men that were full of the Spirit in the sense of miraculous gifts. Um, That's often what filled with the Spirit in the book of Acts might mean. And so this would mean that these are men that had some miraculous gift given them. Maybe it was tongue, maybe it was healing, maybe it was prophecy, whatever it was. Uh, many people think that. But I tend to not think that this was a requirement, that they be filled with the Spirit in a miraculous sense. Uh, nowhere else that I can tell in the New Testament are leaders required to have miraculous gifts. Even in the age when miraculous gifts were 
common when they were practiced. That is not a requirement for leadership. Elders were not required to have miraculous gifts to be elders. Evangelists were not required. Teachers were not required. Now, some of them in the first century had those gifts, but that's not the reason they were qualified to be elders or evangelists or teachers. And I don't think that deacons, or I don't think that the first seven in, in Jerusalem were required to have miraculous gifts. Because if that's what they were required, then how do we apply that today? I think what this simply means is that they were full of the Spirit and that they were spiritually minded men. They were men whose lives were clearly in step with the Spirit. Remember in Galatians 5, after Paul gives that list of the fruits of the Spirit, he says in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Paul's not speaking in Galatians 5 about being filled with the Spirit in a miraculous sense or having miraculous capabilities. He is speaking about living a life that follows and obeys the guidance of the Spirit. Now, how are we guided by the Spirit? I know this is another topic, so we're not going to go down that rabbit trail. Just simply put, we follow the Spirit by adhering to the Spirit-inspired Word of God. The Spirit does not speak to us through our feelings. Our feelings can lead us astray. They can lead us down any number of paths. The Spirit has spoken through the inspired Word. And so our lives are to conform to the spiritual guidelines God has given us in His Word. And so when my life is in accordance with the Word of God, when I am seeking to uh, learn and apply and obey God's Word, then I am walking in the Spirit. I am keeping step with the Spirit. And I think that's exactly what the apostles were asking for when they said, pick out men full of the Spirit. They are not just talented individuals. They're not just men that people liked. They were spiritually minded men who lived their lives in accordance with the Word of God. And also, they were full of wisdom. The task before the seven was an important task, and it was a delicate task. It was a task that had the opportunity, it was uh, a problem had arisen, as we looked at last time, that could cause division. There was already complaint and unrest. And to oversee this task successfully was going to require a great deal of wisdom. Now, for someone to be full of wisdom, they're going to have to have some time of experience. I remember with the eldership qualifications, an elder was not allowed to be a novice. That's not specifically said about the deacons, but I think the idea is still there that this is not a brand new Christian. This is not so, Now, it doesn't have to be an old person, but it has to be someone with enough experience to be able to be full of wisdom. And that wisdom should be seen, again, in the way that they live and they act and they behave uh, and the things that they do. The seven were men who were spiritually focused and they had demonstrated that wisdom that came from a commitment to spiritual priorities. Again, this takes some experience. Someone may be very spiritually minded, but not yet experienced enough to be full of wisdom. A lot of times, new converts are very spiritually minded. They're very focused on learning the Word and applying the Word, but they aren't necessarily full of wisdom yet. And that's understandable, and that's okay. But the seven were to be men who were of good repute, who were full of the Spirit, and were full of the wisdom. So as we look at, at that list of, of what the seven were, and we try and apply that to today, we understand, and we're going to see in a moment, that 1 Timothy 3 gives a much more specific list of qualifications. But I think that the overview of these qualifications in Acts 6 provides a good summary of what we are looking for 
when we are looking for men who can be deacons. We are looking for men who can be trusted. We are looking for men who are spiritually minded and spiritually focused. And we are looking for men who are wise. So with that kind of general overview of what a deacon is, let's look at 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. After Paul gives the qualifications in the first seven verses of 1 Timothy 3 about the elders, he then says, beginning in verse 8, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Again, church leadership is not simply open to anyone who wants to fill a position, nor even just anyone that we may like or think would be good at the job. Paul, via inspiration, provided a, uh, a spirit-inspired list of qualifications. Um, when we went through the eldership, I, I did try and make a, a comment and, and really drive home the idea that uh, we call these qualifications, and I call them qualifications in this lesson, but I also like to think of them more as qualities than qualifications. Sometimes when we hear a list of qualifications, I think what our minds do is they begin seeing a list of disqualifications. We begin seeing every reason why a man shouldn't fill a role or can't fill a role. We begin expecting perfection out of a man, whether it's an elder or whether it's a deacon. And I don't think that's what this list is here for, whether it's the elders or the deacons. But it is a list of qualities. And thus it is a list of qualifications, but it's a list of qualities that should be evident in the type of man that we can trust with the role of an elder, or in this case, of a deacon. And so the official servants of the church, just like the elders of a congregation, must be men of a certain quality and must meet these spirit-inspired qualifications. And so let's look at what Paul says. First of all, these men must be dignified. One definition of this word is to be honorable, worthy of respect and of good character. This is very similar. It's almost identical to the first qualification the apostles gave, isn't it? That idea of being of good repute in Acts chapter 6. So as we consider this idea, again, I don't think I need to go into a lot of explanation about what it means to be worthy of respect and honorable and of good character. So when we begin thinking about appointing deacons, and as we consider a man, whether he should be a deacon or not, we might ask ourselves, does this man's demeanor and do his choices and do his lifestyle cause others to respect him? Do I respect him? Do others respect him? Is he a person who is known for an honorable and a respectable character? And this is important. Why is this important? Why is this one of the qualities we look for? Because a deacon is going to assist the elders and help congregational members meet their needs, and thus he is going to need to be a man of high reputation. People typically do not seek help from those whom they do not respect, or worse, do not trust. Do you want the congregation to send a man to help you and your family who you do not trust? Of course not. Do you want someone helping your widowed mother or your grandfather that needs help? Do you want them sending a person that 
you don't think is trustworthy and that is unrespectable? Of course you don't. You want someone that you can trust with their well-being and with uh, helping meet their needs in the right way. You want someone that you respect and that you trust. You want a man of godly character. And that's what we need in a deacon. Paul says that they are to not be double-tongued. A deacon must be a sincere and a trustworthy man. There's a few other ways this is translated. Um, most of them that I, I looked at were translated not double-tongued. Others say not insincere or not hypocritical or not two-faced. I think that this refers to both the man's uh, speech as well as his character. As we think about a man, we need to ask, do we trust him? Not just do we respect him. These kind of go hand in hand, but do we trust him? Is he the type of man who when he says he will do something, he does it? Is he the type of man who follows through? Is he the type of man that when he says something, you trust it? Is he the type of man that when he does something, you believe he does it honestly and sincerely? Have you ever been helped or attempted, had someone attempt to help you and you got the feeling that they weren't sincere? That's not a good feeling, is it? When deacons help the elders, when they help the church, when they help individual members, they need to be men who are helping sincerely and honestly and faithfully. As a man helps others, he must be a man of sincerity. He is a man whose actions and words must be honest and trustworthy. He should not be the type of man that we expect to say something to one person and then say something slightly different to another person. An individual who changes what he says based on who he's speaking to. That is not the type of man that needs to be assisting the elders while helping members of the congregation and serving the church. That's not a trustworthy man. And he should not be a deacon in the Lord's church. But then Paul says that he is not to be addicted to much wine. Now here's where I'm going to speak about this qualification generically because I think this is one of those qualifications that easily gets side-railed into an entirely different discussion and that being the discussion about the Christian and alcohol. I'll just play, state my view plainly. I don't think Christians need to be drinking alcohol. I don't think it's right. I think it's sinful for Christians to purposefully consume alcohol for purposes of whether it's social drinking or just blending in with other people or getting drunk. Uh, any of those things I think is sinful. But that's an entirely different study. Now, in the qualification of elders and deacons, this is a qualification. And uh, I believe when David gave the lesson, I think it was David, um, on this qualification for elders, he, he gave a great extensive study about the Christian and alcohol. And I encourage you to go back. I think it's on our website. I can find it for you if you want and listen to that. But I don't want to focus just on what all the Bible says about uh, drinking. Because while there's much to be said about that, I think it's also very obvious that a drunkard should not be entrusted as a servant of the church. So is Paul just kind of giving a softball qualification? Uh, I'm guessing that about every man in this audience here fits that qualification. If we just boil it down to they're not addicted to wine. 
But surely for such a noble office, this means something a little bit more. So what else does this imply? Well, I want you to remember Acts chapter 6. We've, we've seen so far these qualifications have fallen quite in line with the generic ones given in Acts 6. Remember in Acts 6, they were, these men were to be full of the Spirit. Now, what does full of the Spirit have to do with not being addicted to wine? Those things don't sound very similar, do they? Well, remember what Paul says in Ephesians 5. And I want to read this whole passage in its context. Look, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. By the way, wisdom is one of the things we're looking for. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Notice when Paul contrasts two totally different ideas, two totally different ways of behaving, what he uses to contrast them. He says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. When Paul contrasts the two basic differences between carnality and spirituality, he chooses drunkenness and being filled with the Spirit. Perhaps, now maybe you disagree with this, but I don't think there are very many things that represent carnality quite like drunkenness. Few things represent a lack of self-control. Few things represent uh, a lack of respectful behavior. Few things represent a lack of spirituality, like drunkenness. And so if we broaden this idea of not addicted to much wine, and we combine it with what we're looking at in Acts 6, what Paul says in Ephesians 5, what we're looking for is not just a man who is able to keep from becoming an alcoholic, but we're looking for a man who is a spiritually minded man like we've already seen in Acts 6. We're looking for a man whose entire demeanor chooses spiritual things over carnal things. And so as we look at a man and consider a man, we, we can ask things like, is this man self-controlled? Is self-control a way I would describe this individual? And I would broaden that out beyond just, can he keep himself from getting drunk? Is he self-controlled? with his temper, with his language, with his behavior, morality? Is the man's life a life that is an example of self-control? Is he spiritually minded or carnally minded? When you look at a man and you observe his life without trying to be judgmental and nitpicky, do you see a man who when you see him, the first thing you think of is his spiritual life and his faith, or do you see a man that's more worried about carnal things, about money, about pleasure, about esteem among other people. Is he a carnally minded man or is he a spiritually minded man? Because when it comes to deacons and serving the church, deacons are called upon to help others and helping others requires a great deal of self-control, especially when it comes to helping meet the physical needs of other people. That requires a spiritually minded man. A carnally minded man could abuse his position, he might neglect his position, or he simply might help in unspiritual and unprofitable ways. Thus, a deacon must be a man of spiritual focus and of self 
control. He also must not be greedy for dishonest gain. A deacon cannot be an individual who is covetous or materialistic, and he certainly shouldn't be a person who is willing to make money in unscrupulous ways. Now, as with all of these, hopefully you see, much like with the eldership, all of us should be striving to be described by such qualities. But it must be evident and clear in a deacon. A deacon uh, is going to be put in certain situations, called upon to help in certain circumstances, that this is going to need, uh, this is necessary to know that he is such a man. As he helps maybe assist people with the church's funds. Remember, what were the seven doing? We had find in Acts that people were selling their possessions, they're selling their home, they're giving the money to the church, they're laying it at the apostles' feet. From this fund, they're actually taking care of those who are in need, especially widows. And so the money that people have given and is in the care of the church, the seven are then able to use to make sure the widows' needs are met. And I think that's the same as what happens in the church today or should happen as Congregational members observe the commandments to give of their means, and there is the treasury, there is the collection for the saints. Deacons sometimes may need to use those funds to help needy Christians. What type of situation does that create? A tempting one. You can look at headlines, you can look at businesses, educational systems, government, churches, stories abound about people who have been entrusted with the finances of an organization who have abused that role. And it can happen in the church. Thus, the men who are appointed to take care of these things and who will be entrusted with both the church's finances and treasury, along with knowing many times the financial situations of other people that they are trying to help, these have to be men of high character, and they have to be men who have demonstrated to the best of our ability to tell that they are not covetous, materialistic, greedy people. Again, do you want a man going to help your widowed mother when you know that he'll do anything to make a buck? No. We despise such people that would prey upon the needs of others. So it needs to be clear that the man who is in this position is the furthest thing from that type of individual. He cannot be greedy and willing to take dishonest gain. And then Paul says, so he's spoken, uh, he's given several negative qualifications. Not this, not this, not this. Now he says he must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now here's an important point that needs to be made. These qualifications have been very similar, if you recall, to the qualifications of elders. But there are a few key differences. And one of the differences that is very apparent is that, de is that elders are required to be able to teach. They come from the teachers. They must be able to teach, I believe, publicly the congregation. And that is one of the ways that they lead the congregation. Deacons are nowhere called to be teachers. And as we look at these men, we might start thinking this sounds a lot like elders, and that's because they do sound a lot like elders, but there is this caveat. They don't have to be teachers. A man does not have to stand in this pulpit and publicly proclaim the Word of God and publicly teach to the congregation to be able to be a deacon. I think that there can be men 
who have never stood in the pulpit and who never will stand in the pulpit that can be wonderful deacons. Now that doesn't mean they can't teach. Stephen and Philip, two of the original seven, went on to become evangelists, basically. But they don't have to. But while a deacon does not have to be a teacher, that does not mean he doesn't know his Bible. He must be a man who knows the Word of God. He may never teach it. He may never host home studies. But he has to be able to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. He needs to be a man that we trust with the Word of God. Now, I think this is interesting. We're talking about men who may be helping take care of some of the physical needs of the congregation. And so... One of, the, one of the views we talked about last time was many people relegate deacons to a maintenance department. And as they begin looking for deacons, they look for someone who's a handyman or they look for someone who's got business savvy or financial experience. None of those things are required to be a deacon. What is required is to know the Word of God and to live in accordance with it. Why? Why does a deacon need to be so sound spiritually? Because deacons will need spiritual strength to avoid temptations. And they will need spiritual strength to provide guidance. After all, as they help meet physical needs, they will have the opportunity to provide spiritual encouragement and guidance to the people who they help. Sometimes that's the way the door opens to really help people spiritually is when we're helping them physically. So who's going to have some of the best opportunities for that? The deacons that help them meet their needs. If you have a man who doesn't know his Bible and isn't able to encourage and exhort in any way, then he shouldn't be entrusted with by the church to officially be the one who goes and helps people. Because it needs to be a man who's spiritually wise and discerning. That doesn't mean he has to be able to do all the teaching, but he needs to be able to encourage and exhort he needs to be able to look at a situation and determine when maybe there's more spiritual help that's needed. Maybe the elders need to get involved. He needs to be able to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And then Paul says that he must be tested. Now, this word means examined or to try and determine the genuineness of. And here's one of the interesting things. I think there's flexibility here because Paul doesn't say how to test him. He doesn't say he has to go through three months or six months. He has to go through this class. He has to do this. He just says, let him be examined. And so in some way that the congregation and the elders can agree on, when it comes time to appoint deacons, I think the best thing to do is to set a time period, again, agreed upon by the congregation, the men, the elders, to say, these are the men we think will be good deacons. And for the next period of time, we are going to officially watch them as they try and show that they are the men we think that they are. Maybe it's a month, maybe it's three months, maybe it's six months. And if those men prove to be the men that the congregation thinks that they are and can do the duties and tasks they are called to do, then they have been examined, they have been tested, and they can be appointed to the work. Again, I think there's flexibility. All we know is that they do need to be tested and examined. Now, verse 11. This is where a lot of the question comes. Um, verse 11, Paul says, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. I'm going to try and go through this as quick as I can because we're already getting close to our time. Uh, but if, you want, if we need to talk more about this, feel free to ask me. I'll try and be as complete as I can. 
in a short amount of time. There are many people who think that women can and should serve as deacons in a congregation, and that is not just a out-of-left-field argument. There are reasons why people think this. First of all, that word there, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, the word there is not in the Greek. That is an, that's an addition, honestly, uh, as part of the interpretation that the ESV translators took. Many of the translations take this view. I don't think it's inappropriate, but it is an interpretation. There is not in the Greek text. The word that's translated wives is the Greek word gune, which is the same word for wife or woman. There's not a different word in the Greek. If you're referring to a wife, you use the word gune. If you're referring just to a woman, you use the word gune. And so in the Greek, this is all there is. Again, there's not there and just this word gune. Context is what determines whether the word means a wife or a woman. And so many people, using that as the foundation, say it doesn't have the possessive there. It could be speaking about um, women instead of wives. And so they reason that women can serve the role of a deacon. Also, um, they may point out, when you look at these, in fact, we're not going to go through these one by one as we've done the other so far, they're really all synonyms for everything Paul said up to this point. They're almost identical to the qualifications that have been given for deacons in verses 8 through 10. And so some argue, okay, you've got the qualifications for men, and you've got the qualifications for women, and as you would expect for the same office, they are virtually the same. And then also you do have in Romans 16 verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria, and that word servant is the Greek word diakonos. That is translated as deacon. Some translations will even render this a deacon or a deaconess of the church. And so they will say, see, you have a woman who is called a diakonos of the church by Paul in Romans chapter 16. And so there are many who say that women can and should be able to serve as a deacon. Now, all of those, I think, are worthy of thought and consideration, but at the end of the day, I still believe that that is not the case. I believe that only men should be appointed to the role of a deacon, and this is why. First of all, as we've already mentioned in Acts 6, they were specifically told to select men. If there was ever a time when women, it would have been appropriate to select women to an official position in the church, Acts 6 would have been the time. They, What were they doing? They were going to help care for widowed women. That would have been a perfect opportunity to say, appoint some men and women, appoint women, appoint men or women. Because surely women would be as qualified to help widow women as men would be, right? And yet the apostle said, select men. Also, in the, con in the context of the passage, this is why I think it's appropriate to take that word as wives and even their wives. You've got verses 8 through 10, where the deacons are addressed. And then verse 11 says women or wives likewise. And then verse 12 goes back to the deacons. Now, if the women are being addressed as, as the deacons, as deaconesses, then why is it addressed to deacons, women, and then addressed to deacons again? That, that doesn't make sense. Verse 11 is referring to someone other than the deacons themselves, contextually. And then even Romans 16, verses 1 and 2. First of all, diakonos, as we've already studied previously, can just mean servant. We're all servants, as Phoebe was. Phoebe may have been a servant because she was a courier. Courier is one of the forms that would be a diakonos. She may have been the one that helped carry or carried the letter of Paul to the Romans. 
Or Paul specifically says that she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. She somehow personally helped fund and finance or encourage the work of Paul. And that, that's actually how some of the women were a part of the ministry, the diakonia of Jesus' ministry, as we'll see. In fact, let's just look at that. Because I want to make this point. While I don't think that women should be appointed the official role of deacon, women, I don't want that to be a discouraging. This is not meant as a beat up on women and tell women all the things they can't do. Because I want to highlight that even if women do not serve in the official role of a deacon, women serve the church and they do so just as much as men. And we see women serving and helping and aiding the cause of Christ and His church throughout the New Testament. In Mark chapter 15, as it speaks about the women who were gathered around the cross, and it tells us of some of those women, it tells us in verse 41 that when He was in Galilee, they followed Him and ministered to Him. That's what that word is. That's the verb form in the Greek, diakoneo. They ministered him to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. There were women that actively served Christ and his ministry day by day. Now, they didn't do the exact same thing as the apostles did. But they served the Lord. In Luke 8, verse 3, uh, it, as it speaks about some of the women who followed him, there's Mary Magdalene, out of whom he, he cast the, the demons. There were other women, uh, and there was Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, says many others who provided. Now that word is translated provided. It's the exact same word. It's the Greek word diakoneo. They provided for him. They served Jesus. Women help serve the church. This would be a study in and of itself that would be interesting and beneficial. But I just want to point out in the book of Acts, we have women helping the church in different ways. We have Tabitha, who interestingly helped widows. She made garments and tunics for widows, and the widows loved her. When she died, they sent to Peter, and Peter would come and actually resurrect her. But we see she had been full of good works. Now, she had not been appointed one of the seven to oversee officially the daily distribution of the widows, but she still helped the widows. We see Mary, the mother of John Mark, the church gathered at her house. That was a way that a woman served the church. There is Lydia, who when uh, she was baptized and obeyed the gospel, she hosted Paul and his traveling companions. It's very likely that that's where the church at Philippi began worshiping, was perhaps at Lydia's house. We have Priscilla, who along with her husband Aquila, helped instruct Apollos. Um, not Apollo, that's a... That's a typo. They didn't instruct the Greek God. It was Apollos, the man eloquent in the scriptures. They helped him. She was a part of that process. She specifically mentioned there's Philip's daughters, who I know a lot of people have questions about. We're not told anything other than that they prophesied. But the scriptures tell us that they prophesied. So we see throughout Acts, we could list more. We could list parts of the New Testament. Women serve the church. And ladies, you serve the church even though it would not be right for the congregation, just like it would not be right for the congregation to appoint one of the ladies here the evangelist or to have her speak publicly, and yet you evangelize your family, your friends, as you share the gospel in your daily circles, even though you may not be an overseer of this congregation, you can provide spiritual guidance and counsel to others. Even though you will never be a public teacher, you teach others in the right settings. And even though a woman will not be an official deacon of the congregation, you serve the church. And so I think it's important for us to do things the right way, but also encourage women to serve 
wholeheartedly. Now that brings up the question, why? Why must deacons' wives be qualified? Well, I think the best explanation is because of the nature of the work. Deacons will be directly involved in helping members meet their needs. And as they do, there will be many circumstances, perhaps, where a deacon may require the help of a woman, where he may, for reputation's sake or any other number of reasons, need a woman to be present with him when he goes to help one of the sisters of the congregation. Who better than his wife? And so his wife will become intimately involved in his work and help him with his work directly. And I think there's an important point to be made here. Why was this not said about the elders' wives in verses 8, 1 through, 1 through 7? Well, I think we can recognize the impact of a godly wife on a man's ability to serve and function as an elder. But we also have to realize that when men are appointed to oversee the congregation, their wives are not appointed automatically to co-oversee the congregation. When a man becomes an elder whatever jokes we might say, his wife does not become the eldress. Men are not appointed as elders to oversee the men of their congregations and their wives by default to oversee the women of the congregations. When a man is appointed to be an elder, he is appointed to shepherd and to guide and to oversee the congregation. Now again, his wife may help him, she may support him, she may encourage him and be involved in his work in certain ways, but she does not co-oversee or guide the congregation. But with a deacon, deacons are not overseeing, they are not guiding, they are not shepherding, they are serving needs. And some of those needs may require the help of a woman, unless their wives need to be just as qualified as the men themselves. Because it will not suffice to have a trustworthy man serve as a deacon if his wife is completely untrustworthy and unspiritual. Such a man, man will have a hard time truly serving and truly helping and being found trustworthy by the congregational members. Well, then we have in verse 12, Paul returns to the deacons and their qualifications. This is another reason why I think it's only men because when he comes back to them, he says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife and managing their children and their households well. Again, we could talk about specifics here, but I'm just going to look at this generically. What is Paul getting at? The best way to judge a man's ability is to look at his home. What type of a husband is he? What type of a father is he? How does his family function? If a man's marriage is a mess, he should not be called on to be an exemplary servant for the rest of the congregation. If a man's family is a mess, he shouldn't be entrusted with helping other families in the congregation. And man, this is something for us to realize whether we want to be deacons or teachers or preachers or elders or not. The home is the first and the primary place where a man begins to learn true servant-hearted leadership. And you may never be a deacon, you may never be a preacher, you may never be an elder, but if you are a husband, you must be a godly husband. And if you are a father, you must be a godly father. Now, if a man wants to be a part of church leadership and church service, then he needs to practice at home 
being a servant-hearted leader. And if a man will not take seriously his role of husband and role of father, then he should not be entrusted with leadership of the church in any way. Well, to close, just as we appoint qualified men to the eldership, only qualified men should be entrusted with the work of deacons. The men whom we entrust to assist the elders and meet the needs of the congregation must be trustworthy men, men who uh, we can entrust with noble service. They must be meet the spirit-given qualifications of Scripture. And those are men who are honorable, sincere, spiritually minded, who along with their wives have demonstrated their commitment to the Lord in their own home first of all and also before the congregation. But to end this series, I want to end with a note of encouragement and excitement because that's how Scripture ends the qualifications of deacons. When we talked about elders, we talked about its importance because it's God's plan and because we feel assured that if we follow God's plan, then we will be blessed for that. And I believe we have. And I think the same is true with deacons. When a church meets God's pattern and follows God's pattern, there are blessings and it encourages us. And the same is true with deacons. By appointing qualified deacons, congregation, I'm sure, will be blessed and so will the men themselves. Remember in Acts chapter 6, the summary that was given after these men were appointed and went about their work and the word of God continued to increase. When a church has qualified men serving as deacons, I think it encourages the church to increase in the word of God and in spreading the gospel and in building up the members. But men who may be deacons, there's a promise for you as well. Paul says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. We could spend quite a bit of time probably talking just about that. But I think that's a beautiful promise. For those who are willing to serve, there is great blessing and great standing in the eyes of our Savior, who is the greatest servant of all. And so I hope that this series of lessons has encouraged us to think soberly and seriously, but also optimistically about the role and the work of deacons and about the possibility of working towards deacons here at our own congregation.